Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here at church today, and welcome to all of you who are watching online at home or traveling or wherever you are today. Thanks for being with us as we worship God together. What a great time of worship this morning. Now we get to continue it. We just worship God through our singing. Now we're going to worship God by opening his word together, and I'm so excited to do that. Before I do that, let me introduce myself. For those of you that are new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church, and we're so glad that you are here worshiping with us here today. And I also want to recognize all of you who helped out yesterday in a lot of different ways here at the church and elsewhere. We had a bunch of stuff going on yesterday. We had a, a work project go on for a bunch of people that were serving. We had a father-son barbecue flag football event that I guess really wore out some dads. So way to go, guys, on that. Uh, something like six hours of football in a huge tournament with eight teams. And how many, how many of you went to that? Anybody in here that went to that? Just raise your hand if you were at that. Okay, a few of you. How many of you are really sore? Anybody sore? Yeah? I talked to a few out in the lobby who were just dragging from all that football, but way to go. And then, then after that, we had a trunk or treat event. We had about 1,000 people between our, our guests, our volunteers for that. So thank you for all of you. Anybody help out do a trunk or help out and serve at that? Thank you so much for doing that. A great community event. Really wonderful. Yeah, give it up for... Our Kid Connection team and outreach and all the people coming out and being a part of that. Thank you so much. It's fun. We get to give them information about the church. And our hope is that more people will get connected to God's church through those kinds of events. And of course, give opportunities for them to grow and serve in lots of different ways. So a lot of fun going on here yesterday. Lots more fun coming up. Today, what I want to do is start off by just asking you a question. Um, and that question is this. Has anyone ever looked down on you for some reason? Have you ever just felt someone judging you or discriminating against you or actually treated you unfairly for some reason? And maybe it's something beyond your control. Maybe it has to do with your age or your skin color or your country of origin or some other factor about you that you just get this sense or maybe they're actually very open about it. Like they're sort of discriminating against you or treating you unfairly in some way because of something that just seems beyond your control. How do we want to respond in those moments when we feel like someone's treating us unfairly? Give me, a, give me an idea here of what, what is the way that our natural self wants to respond when we pick up on something like that? Lash out? What else? Defensive? Revenge, that's right. I want to get back at them. Absolutely. Anything else? I, I heard something. Prove, prove them wrong. And there was somebody over here. I don't want to leave you guys out. Ignore them? Just leave them alone? Yeah, there are all sorts of ways that we want to respond when we feel like we are being treated unfairly or inappropriately. And today we're going to look at a passage in Scripture where Paul is going to help Timothy with this very issue. We're in 1 Timothy. You'll remember we're going through this study of the first letter to Timothy from Paul. So you can turn there in your Bibles if you want. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. But we're going to look at a passage where the Apostle Paul is helping Timothy deal with this issue of he is being somehow mistreated, discriminated against because of his age in this case. And Paul is going to give him some advice on how to handle this. Evidently, there were some people in the church 
who not only, uh, there, there were a lot of problems in this church in Ephesus. There were people that were, they were spreading false teaching. There were people that were causing various kinds of issues in the church and, and not very helpful people. And they were evidently opposing Timothy's leadership in some ways. And one of the reasons that they would use is, well, he's young. So therefore he can't know what he's talking about. So we don't have to do what he says, even though he's the one who's been put in charge and responsible for this church in Ephesus. And so Paul is going to deal with that today in our passage. We're in 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 11. We're just going to read three verses and then spend some time unpacking this concept of what do we do when we feel like we are being mistreated. 1 Timothy 4, verse 11 says, teach these things and insist that everyone learn them. This is Paul talking to Timothy. Teach these things. You know, we've covered a good chunk of 1 Timothy now, and Paul has given all kinds of instructions, and Paul is saying, hey, this isn't just for you. Teach these things to everyone else. Insist that they learn them. So there's some authority there. And then he says, don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. That must have been a problem that Timothy was dealing with. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. And then he says, until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers, and teaching them. Let's just pause and pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we trust it, and we trust that it not only has application 2,000 years ago for young Timothy, but it has application for us today, and maybe in some ways we've never considered before. So God, my prayer as we approach your word this morning to study it together is that you would soften our hearts to hear the message you have for us, and maybe it's not something I will communicate. Maybe it's something that's going to leap off the page to individuals. There's something that you want us to get this morning to live differently, to surrender to you, Lord. We pray for soft and receptive hearts. We pray that you'd soften our own hearts. We pray that you would reveal to us things from your word that we can live out this week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So what do you do when someone is looking down on you or you think someone's looking down on you? You think maybe they're mistreating you for some reason. I want to acknowledge right off the bat here that what Paul is dealing with with Timothy is a very specific situation. There's specific circumstances going on in Ephesus. In fact, Paul probably knows by name the people who are treating Timothy this way. And so he's able to give very specific advice to a specific situation. And sometimes in the church, we make the mistake of preaching on a specific passage of scripture, a specific topic, and missing the big picture context that gives us a little more information. And so what can happen is sometimes people will walk out of a church service thinking, well, I'm dealing with this situation right here, and the pastor said, whenever it's something like that, I'm supposed to respond this way, and there's actually a broader understanding in the Bible of how we're supposed to respond to situations sometimes than what we see in one passage of Scripture. And so Paul is dealing with one specific time where certain people are mistreating Timothy or not respecting him because of his youth. But I want to broaden that context a little bit because I don't want anyone to walk away with the wrong impression today. I would just want to zoom out and say, what does the Bible say we are to do when we feel we have been mistreated, when we've been treated unfairly in some way? And maybe it's because of something uh, you know, about us. Maybe it's some kind of discrimination or something like that. Maybe, maybe it's because we're old. It's because we're young. It's because of what gender we are, whatever it is. I want to zoom out a little bit and say, if you today are feeling like, hey, someone is treating me unfairly at school, at work, in your family, with your friends, whatever it is, what does the Bible say we're supposed to do about that? And then we're going to zoom back in on Timothy's situation and explore the specific advice that Paul gave Timothy for what he was dealing with. So I'm just going to give you a few things from God's word 
that you can do when you feel like you are being treated unfairly. And the first one comes right from the words of Jesus. You may want to write this down. There's just going to be four simple phrases. The first one is to examine yourself. Examine yourself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge others and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? And then Jesus gets really serious. He says, hypocrite. that's That's a rough thing. Can you imagine being called in person by Jesus a hypocrite? First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. When we think that we are being mistreated by someone, it is so important to try to step back and take a look at the big picture and really turn the magnifying glass around on ourselves and say, is there something in me that I need to deal with here? Maybe I am being mistreated. Maybe I'm not. But what is there that I need to look at? Am I somehow in the wrong here that I need to examine that first? That's what Jesus tells us to do. First, look at yourself. And this is where having a wise friend or a Christian counselor or a pastor speak into your life can be so, so helpful because they can give that objective third party and say, yeah, you know what? There is actually something here that would be good for you to work on. Let me give you a little illustration I happen to be a very big fan of Venn diagrams. I think they just represent so many things in life. So I'm going to give you a Venn diagram here to look at. And what we're going to have over here is things that I can control. And over here, we're going to have things that I can't control. So we've got things I can control and things that I can't control. Now, in life... There are these things that we can control, that we can influence, that we have some ownership of, and there are things that we can't control, right? And these are these two different circles here, things I can control, things that I can't control. Now, when something goes wrong in life, when something doesn't go our way, where do we usually look first for causation? It's a genuine question. But those of you that are laughing already know the answer. It's the things that we can't control, right? That's the stuff we look to first. It's this side over here. All the stuff that I can't control. There's some stuff that I have some influence over in the middle here and things that I can and can't control. There's a lot of stuff over here that I can control. But usually we're going to look for the things that we can't control as this must be why. It's got to be someone else's fault. Now, why is that? Why do you think we look first to the things that we can't control as the reason for why something's not going well for us or, or we don't like our experience? Because we're perfect and it's not our fault. Yes. Thank you so much. You guys, you guys have it figured out. Why else? Uh, responsibility I hear back there. What else? I heard something. Maybe Kim? Same thing. Same thing. It was amazing. Wow, you guys are on the same page. We don't want to take responsibility, right? It can't be me. It's got to be something else. It's got to be something outside of me. And it really, it does, a lot of it boils down to individual responsibility. If we don't want the blame directed at us, we are naturally self-centered, prideful people. And so the problem must be outside of us. It must be over here in this can't control thing. It can't be over here in the things that I can control because that would mean I have some responsibility for this. If you ask a person who was just fired from their job why they got fired, do you think that they're going to tell you, well, I just refused to do what my supervisor told me to do. 
I wouldn't do it. You know, and they gave me a performance improvement plan and they were pretty gracious, gave me a whole list of things to work on. And, you know, I spent another six, uh, six months there and I just, I wasn't willing to do what they asked me to do. So they let me go. You never hear anyone say that. Or what about, um, what about school? Why'd you drop out of school? Well, you know, I liked playing video games and hanging out with my friends more than studying. Basically, I was lazy. Nobody ever says that. Or what about with our kids? Why did you break his toy? Wouldn't it be refreshing if the answer came back because I was angry and I sinned? And I apologize. Now, I can tell you from personal experience as a dad, that is a very rare, maybe impossible, never happening occurrence. Unless there's some discipline that precedes that response. But the first response that you get is not going to be, I was, I was a mess. I was wrong. I screwed up. Why? We're always looking outside of ourselves for something to blame. So we have to be able to examine ourselves. I mean, usually what you hear from the kids is, why'd you break that toy? Well, his was bigger than mine and I wanted it to be the same size. So I made it even. You know, it wasn't fair. So I took matters into my own hands because something that I couldn't control was wrong. Or at school, my teachers were so unfair, they graded everybody else way easier than me. Or at work, my boss was such a a jerk, and I think it's because of, you know, whatever, my, my gender, my skin color, whatever it might be. Now, this is not to say that there aren't times where there really is unfair treatment. There is. But the first thing we have to do is just examine ourselves and examine the situation and say, is this really what I think it is? Is this really someone mistreating me in some way? Or do I have some kind of responsibility here? Is there personal responsibility? We have to examine ourselves before we point the blame at other people. That's number one. Jesus said that. Number two, another thing Jesus said is to overlook the offense. The second thing we can do is overlook the offense. There's a, a little known verse in the Bible about this that says that, that mature or wise people have the ability to receive an offense and just let it roll off their back like water off a duck's back. Just, just leave it alone. And this is in Proverbs 19. It says, sensible people or wise people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. And hey, you may have been treated unfairly in life or in your family or at work or at school or with your friends. You may have have gotten the, the wrong end of the stick on something. And that may be a problem. That may be a bad thing. But there are times when you as a wise and mature person can say, you know what? I'm not gonna let that bother me. I'm gonna overlook that offense. It's kind of like when Peter says in 1 Peter that love covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying there wasn't sin. He's saying that when you are a loving person, love can overcome that, can overlook that. That word overlook in Proverbs 19 here, overlook, what it literally means is to pass over. It means to pass over something, to jump over like a hurdle. It's like when a, when a runner is running and jumps over a hurdle and they clear the hurdle. That's what passing over means. Now, what happens when a runner jumps over a hurdle and then looks back and stares at the hurdle as they keep running? They run right into the next one, don't they? And so the idea is that if you can jump over and clear that offense and completely pass over, overlook it and not look back at it, that's great. That's a wise thing and mature thing to do. But you know, sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes it just keeps gnawing at us. Sometimes we can't get over it. And that offense, it just eats us up. And I can't believe the way they treated me. I can't believe they said that thing to me. And it's probably because of this. And I just can't, it gnaws at me. And this bitterness starts to well up. What do we do then if we just can't seem to move on past it? Well, Jesus has advice for us there too. In Matthew chapter 18, he talks about this. And we're gonna call this having the conversation. Number three, sometimes you need to have the conversation. 
So many relationship problems are caused simply because we are not willing to have the sometimes awkward, sometimes uncomfortable conversation with someone who we think has treated us unfairly. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. And in Galatians 6, Paul says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. That means that you don't go in frustration or bitterness or anger or seeking revenge when someone sins or sins against you or offends you in some way. But as Jesus said, you privately, and as Paul says, with humbleness and gentleness, you approach them and say, hey, I'm not sure if you meant it this way, but this is how this hurt me or this is how this hit me or it seems like you're treating me unfairly. You have to have the conversation. And Jesus and Paul are writing specifically about situations within the family of God. But this actually works for people outside the faith as well. Now, there's one more thing I'll share with you as we kind of zoom out and look at this big picture of handling people who treated us unfairly. And this one has to do with someone has wronged you in a way that violates some rules. Maybe some rules at your company, at your organization, at your school, uh, maybe some laws. Maybe there's a criminal aspect of this. And it's important that we acknowledge this because I think sometimes we've been guilty in the church world of making it seem like every time someone does something wrong to you, you just kind of have to be quiet about it, be gracious, be loving, you know, turn the other cheek, don't rock the boat, you know, fill in the, fill in the phrase there. And, and I don't necessarily think that's what the Bible teaches. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 13 for this and, and just very quickly point out something Paul says to us. He says, the authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So there are times when we're treated unfairly or we perceive that, that we need to examine ourselves. And there are times when we need to overlook the offense. And there are times when we need to have the conversation. But there are also times where we need to raise the issue. We need to elevate the issue. And say, this is something that's a problem. I've, I've examined myself. This is not something I can overlook. Maybe I have had the conversation with them, or maybe it's the type of thing where that's not appropriate. But there are times when we need to get authorities involved because God has given them as his servants to punish those who do wrong and to protect those who do good. And it's not wrong for a Christian to say, this is something that needs to stop. And we should do that with all gentleness and humility and graciousness as we do. But I wanted to make sure I share this big picture because if I just dove into what Timothy is dealing with, you could walk away connecting that to your situation and that might not be appropriate for your situation. If you are in a situation where someone is doing something to harm you in some way or violating some rules or laws in some way, I don't want you to walk away with what I'm about to say from 1 Timothy and say, well, I just need to do that and I can't do anything else about it. No, there are other ways to respond and it depends on the situation and you need to get wise counsel to know how to do that. So you might need to examine yourself. Well, we should always examine ourselves. You might be able to overlook the offense. Proverbs 19.11, fantastic verse. Have the conversation if it's something that you can't just overlook. I, I heard of a woman one time who learned about the have the conversation part, but never looked, learned about the overlook the offense part. And so once she learned to have the conversation part, every little thing anyone did that annoyed her, she wanted to have a confrontation. 
every tiny little thing. And you know what the reality is? You know as well as I do in life, it's like a daily occurrence. Somebody does something that's like, ooh, that bristles the wrong way. Didn't appreciate that. But the Bible says if you can overlook the offense, it's, it's a wise, sensible thing to do. If you can't, then go have the conversation. And sometimes we need to raise the issue. So those are all my caveats before I get into the situation with Timothy and Paul. What is Timothy's situation here? Well, people are looking down on him because of his age, evidently. There's, there's some fear of kind of discrimination there, a lack of respect there, uh, maybe doing some things that are inappropriate in the church and not listening to him when he says, hey, that's not what we should be doing here. So it's probably connected to the people in the other parts of the letter who are spreading false teaching, causing problems within the church, causing problems in the worship services, whatever that could be. How would Timothy respond? He could get bitter. He could get frustrated. He might feel like throwing in the towel. In fact, I think Paul alludes to that in this letter. He does not want Timothy to give up. But what is Paul's advice for him? Well, first of all, he says in verse 11, teach these things and insist that everyone learn them. He reminds Timothy, hey, you are the spiritual authority of this church. Don't stop teaching. Insist that everyone learn these things. Don't give up on this. And then he says, don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, your faith, and your purity. And what I want to focus on here is the connection between don't let anyone think less of you and be an example because these two things are tied together. I have sometimes heard younger people use this verse as sort of a defensive weapon. A bit of a shield. I have heard younger people, when they face any kind of criticism or objection from older people, point to 1 Timothy 4.12 and say, ah, you can't think less of me because I'm young. You got to let me do what I want to do. You can't think less of me because I'm young. That is not how Paul is using this verse. What he's actually saying here is to not let people think less of you and fill in the blank with whatever the issue is, because you're young, because you're old, because you're this gender, because you're this hairstyle, whatever it is. Don't let people think less of you because you are whatever, but set an example. The way to not let people think less of you is to set an example. It's not to focus on attacking them, on revenge, on bitterness, on, on hate, on anger. It's to focus on you and what you can do to be as an example. That is the message Paul is trying to get across. Don't, think less, don't let anyone think less of you. It's not an invitation to fight for your respect. It's an invitation for you to do everything you can to earn it by focusing on you and what you can do. Here's how to not let others look down on you. Be an example. And remember all the caveats of before. Sometimes you've got to examine yourself and you've got to overlook offenses and you've got to have the conversation. You've got to raise the issue, but be an example. So what kind of example should we be? This is what I love about Paul. I enjoy Paul's writing so much because he, he gives us lists. I'm a list kind of person. I've got a task system where I keep track of all the things I need to do, and there's all these different lists. And there, anybody else a list person? I just love lists. They keep things organized. And Paul, oftentimes when he gives some instruction, he will follow it up with some kind of a list. Here's a bunch of ways to do it. Like when he says in Philippians 4, I want you to, to turn your worries into prayer requests and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And finally, my dear brothers, think about these things. And he gives eight things to think about. 
He didn't just say, think about good things. He gives eight things to think about. Well, here he says, be an example. And he doesn't leave it at that. Just to be an example. No, he's going to give you five ways that you can specifically work on being an example. If you feel other people are mistreating you, you want to earn respect. You want to not let people look down on you for some reason, be an example in these five ways. And I'm just going to put them all on the screen right now. It's how you, what you say, how you live, how you love, how you trust, and how you stay pure. These are the five things that you can do to be an example, even if you find yourself in a situation where it seems like people aren't treating you well. Let's walk through each of these together. Just explore from the Bible. What did these mean? My favorite verse on what you say is Colossians chapter four, verse six, which says, let your conversation or your speech always be gracious and attractive or seasoned with salt, some versions say, so that you will have the right response for everyone. When you get the sense that someone isn't treating you well, is your first reaction to want to say positive, uplifting things or negative, tearing down things? Well, of course, it's to say negative, tearing down things. And yet what Paul is teaching here is, hey, the words that we use need to be gracious. They need to be attractive. They need to be a positive thing. And that's a difficult thing to do. But that's the kind of example that God wants us to be. Even when we find ourselves in a situation where someone is criticizing us. Even when we find ourselves in a situation where someone is treating us poorly because of something that we can't control. Or we, or we think that they're judging us in some way. Our response as followers of Jesus must be that our words should be an example of graciousness and of being attractive in our speech. Being an example in how you live is the next one. And that means that the things you do, your conduct should reflect your relationship with God. I'm going to stay in Colossians for this one. Colossians 1.9 says, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Here's why you need that spiritual wisdom and understanding. He says, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Now, some of you may remember, if you were with us a year ago, we did a whole study on Colossians called Rooted. And we spent a lot of time on this verse right here, talking about the cycle of spiritual growth and how Paul is praying for wisdom and understanding so that the way they live will honor and please God. They will produce all kinds of good fruit. And as they're doing that, they will get closer to God. They'll know God better. And the cycle continues because that better knowledge of God brings more of that wisdom and understanding so that the way they live can honor and please God even more so they can produce more good fruit. And all the while, they're still getting to know God better. So it's this cycle that just continues of spiritual growth, kind of almost more of a spiral, just kind of working up. This is what our spiritual walk with God is supposed to look like as we grow closer to him. And what that means is in our lives, we're producing good fruit. We're living in a way that honors and pleases God. And that life should be an example, even when we feel like others are treating us poorly. Be an example. Be an example in what you say. Be an example in how you live. And then be an example in how you love. And for this, I'm going to go to one of my favorite verses. I've mentioned this many times. First Peter 4, 8 says, most important of all, one of the most important things you can do. If you want to know how to, how to honor and please God, if you want to know how to live in a way that's going to honor God, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other for love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? That means, yeah, someone really did sin. 
And, and you know, sometimes it's our perception. Sometimes it's real. Someone really did sin. Someone did treat you unfairly. Someone treated you inappropriately. And Timothy's dealing with this in his context. But love covers a multitude of sins. Love helps us to overlook offenses. And there are times, and you experience this probably every day, where someone says something, does something, it's insensitive. Maybe they meant it. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it's sinful. Whatever it is, love can help us overcome those offenses. It's hard to do. But Paul is telling Timothy, even as these people might discriminate against you because of something that's beyond your control, you should be an example of love. Then number four, Paul says to be an example of faith. Be an example of faith or an example of how to trust in God. I think that faith is an area that Christians struggle with a lot. And I think it's actually something we struggle with maybe even more than we realize because I think there are three main areas where faith shows up in our lives. The first one is faith in the faith. Faith in the faith. Faith that God exists. Faith that he sent his son to die for us. Faith that the Bible is God's word, that every word of it is true, that we are to follow it and and bank our lives on it. That's faith in, in the faith. And those of you who have trusted in Jesus and believe in God and what he did for us and, and follow Jesus as your savior, well, we have faith in the faith. And sometimes that can be a challenge and sometimes that can be tested and sometimes we have doubts. But there's another area of faith, which is faith in crisis. Faith in crisis when, when you lose your job, when a loved one is diagnosed with a serious condition, when you lose a loved one, when someone that is very close to you betrays you. These are moments of crisis and and our faith shows up in a big way in those moments. And sometimes it just wrecks us and devastates us and we're just not sure anymore. And is God good? And is he really looking out for me? And can I really trust him in the middle of this? And is is any of this going to work out for good? That's faith in crisis. Or do we have the response of, you know what? God's got this and and he's going to get me through this. That's faith in crisis. And so there's faith in the faith and there's faith in crisis, but there's another area, a third area that I want to talk about, which is faith when things don't go our way. And I'm not talking about the big stuff here. I'm not talking about the crises of life. I'm talking about the little things here. I'm talking about when someone says something insensitive to us that rubs us the wrong way. Maybe they meant it, maybe they didn't, but we stew on it the rest of the day. Or we just found out that our car has engine problems and now we're going to have to deal with that the rest of the week and it just throws us into a bad attitude that lasts for the whole week. You know what I'm talking about? Or the person that I want to be friends with doesn't seem like they want to be friends with me. And so now I struggle with jealousy and bitterness and and resentment. When things don't go our way, that is probably how our faith is tested most frequently. And to be an example of faith cannot just mean in moments of crisis, but also in moments of inconvenience. We have to be an example of faith, not just in moments of crisis, but also in moments of inconvenience, in moments of discouragement, not as a a fake, I'm going to pretend nothing is wrong kind of way, but a genuine choice that I make inside to tell myself the truth about what my faith means in a moment where I don't like what's going on. Someone has done something to treat me poorly or something has happened in life that I don't appreciate, I don't enjoy. This is how our faith is tested on a daily basis. And here is why we can have faith in those moments, because there are some truths that we know, you know, I'm not going to give you anything new here that you haven't heard before, but do you remember this when someone does something that rubs you the wrong way? God's not surprised by this. That's a truth. 
If God is omniscient and all-knowing, he knows. God allowed this. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then he knew this was coming and he still let it happen. God will see me through this. Greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. He will work all things out for good to those who love him. And so I know that God will see me through this and God saved me for eternity. And that matters a lot more than this. That's a perspective statement. I know that the inconvenience I'm facing right now or the difficulty or the accusation or the insult or the discrimination or whatever it is, I know that that thing I'm facing right now compared to what God has done for me is minuscule by comparison. We allow these little things in our lives to trip us up. And and, and by the way, I am preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you right now. This is something we all struggle with. This idea of can we have faith and be an example of faith even in moments of inconvenience or when somebody just says something rude to us? Can we be an example of faith in that? What does faith look like in that? It looks like saying, you know what? This is, this is nothing for God. He knows about it. He allowed it to happen. He's going to see me through it. And he's given me something so much better than whatever this person just did to me, said to me, even whether they meant it or not. Isn't that an example of faith in God every single day? So is a bad attitude maybe just evidence of a lack of faith? I think that maybe it is. I'm not saying that I've eliminated bad attitudes from my life. I'm just saying, I think I recognize now that when I have a bad attitude, that shows a lack of faith in God in that moment. If I really believe these four things, is bitterness towards someone an evidence of a weak faith in God? If God's got this, if he saw it coming, if he allowed it to happen, what reason do I have to be bitter? Is constant worry over something in my life, my family, my kids, constant anxiety, worry, is that an evidence of a lack of faith in God that He's allowing this and he knows about it and he can handle it and he's given me something far better than whatever I'm worried about. I would submit to you that this is how our faith is most often tested. And this is probably one of the greatest ways that we can be an example of faith. So be an example in what you say and how you live and how you love and how you trust God in your faith, no matter what surprises come your way. I wonder how our lives might be radically different. And I mean our whole lives. I mean our Monday through Saturday lives. I mean our stuck at home or at work lives. How would our lives be different if we actually lived out personally the kind of faith that we want other Christians to think we have? Man, that would be powerful. Be an example in your faith. The last area is your purity. Paul says to be an example in your purity. There are two aspects to this. One aspect certainly is in sexual purity. In fact, Paul just finished telling Timothy, hey, as you're hiring church leaders, as you're putting them in place, make sure that you're getting people who are faithful to their spouses. He specifically uses the phrase, a one woman man. I want you to get faithful people who are not kind of, you know, spreading it around, hanging out with people they shouldn't hang out with and being involved with people and and more than one individual. That's not the kind of relationship Paul wants. But purity for Paul has more than one connotation. It's not just sexual purity, but earlier in this letter, he talked about pure of heart, purity of heart. He said in in chapter one, verse five, this is the purpose of my writing so that all believers would be pure of heart. What does that mean? It means right motivations, 
It means not saying one thing and doing another, not trying to manipulate or deceive to get our way. I once was with a boss who was talking to his employees and he shared with his employees the plan for the next year. And then he went into his board and shared with his board a very different plan for the next year. And afterward, I called him out on it privately and said, hey, you, you realize you just gave two opposite plans to these two different groups of people. That certainly seemed you know, dishonest and disingenuous. And he said, well, I told each group what they needed to hear. That is not being pure of heart. That is not pure motives. That is not honesty and integrity in what we are doing to deceive or manipulate, to try to get our way. Paul wrote about something about this in, in 2 Corinthians, very similar to what he told Timothy here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, we prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us. Whether they slander us or praise us, we are honest, but they call us imposters. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that even though they slander us, even though they call us liars, even though we're telling the truth, they despise us because we're serving God, we are going to continue to be examples of purity and of honesty. We're going to continue to preach the truth. We're not going to respond by attacking them in kind. We're not going to put them down, for instance, but we're going to be an example of purity and love and understanding and patience and kindness and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I am certain that at times it was tempting for Paul and probably for Timothy to want to tell people what they wanted to hear. Paul had a lot of enemies, a lot of people that didn't like what he was doing, and evidently Timothy had some as well. And if Paul had just kind of given lip service to the slanders, maybe things could have been a little more comfortable for him. Maybe he would have had less difficulties in his ministry, less people opposing him or trying to take away from him. Maybe he'd have a bigger following. Maybe more people would like him if he did that. Maybe the, the people that were working against him, he could get them to accept him if he just sort of said the things that would smooth things over with them. And maybe he wasn't so big on this whole gospel thing, but allowed there to be some other things that would kind of get in there too that maybe weren't quite right, but it's okay he smoothed things over. But Paul wants all the believers to be pure of heart, have honest motivations, have integrity in everything that they do and not compromise on the truth. Let me give you one last thing that Paul says in our text today. The last verse we read, verse 13, he says, until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. In other words, what he's saying is, Timothy, Keep doing the things you know you're supposed to do. Even though you're facing some difficult situations, even though you've got these people that are working against you, even though they're criticizing you and attacking you for something that's beyond your control, your age, keep doing what you were put there to do. Keep preaching, teaching, reading scripture, encouraging the believers, keep doing the thing you are supposed to do. So often, when we feel mistreated by other people, whether it's in our family or workplace or school or whatever it is, our response is to shrink back and view ourselves through a victim lens. And we view other people through an oppressor lens. And they're all doing this to me. And yet what Paul is saying, don't forget the job that you are called to do, the mission that you are on. You need to be an example and you need to keep doing the things you know you're supposed to do. And I wonder 
How many of us in this room right now or watching online are dealing with a situation that, while not the same as Timothy's, can be similar in some way? There's a situation that we are facing where, where we feel like people are mistreating us in some way. And it might be unfair, and it might be wrong, and it might be sinful. We need to remember all of Jesus' teaching on this. We need to remember the whole counsel of the Bible on this, about examining ourselves and being willing to overlook an offense and having the conversation if we need to and raising the issue if it's something that rises to the level of violating rules or criminal activity. But at the end of the day, we also need to just turn around and say, I need to be an example. Even if they don't respect, even if they don't treat me the way I want to be treated, I'm going to focus my energy on doing the things that I know need to be done, that I need to do, and on being an example in these five areas. Be an example. Don't get bitter. Don't get frustrated. Don't quit. Be an example in your family relationships, at work, and at school, whatever you are facing today. I think if Paul were standing here instead of me, he would say whatever it is. Do the, all the caveats we mentioned earlier, but be an example and do what you know to do. Would you pray with me? God, this is an easier thing to say than it is to live out. And I would guess that probably most of us listening to this right now can think of a situation either recently or something that we're currently experiencing that we would say, man, that's, this, just feels, this just feels wrong. And the tendency in those moments, God, is to, to shrink back, to retreat into things that we use to cover up the, the pain or the frustration that we feel, to, to self-medicate on all sorts of things that are not healthy for us. But God, you have given us such incredible guidance for what we need to do. And I just pray that you'd help us to do it. I pray that for everybody listening to this message right now, that if there are things in our lives where, where we need to examine or we need to overlook or we need to have the conversation or we need to raise the issue, and we certainly need to be an example in these five areas, God. Help us to do that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us of that. And, and not just today, but tomorrow is where this really is going to hit hard for some people. And some people are going to be faced with someone saying something to them that is unkind and unpleasant. And I just pray that, that this little time in the Word today would be what someone needs to face the difficulties they're going to face this week and respond in a way that honors and pleases you, God. Help us to live it out this week. And in Jesus' name we pray.